Shankar. Uh, good, good to good to meet you once again. So I like like we we sort of discussed a whole host of things, and I don't consider myself any kind of scholar. Most of my understanding of what constitutes our traditions uh, or what survives as Indian traditions or what we might describe as Hinduism uh, is more out of my reading uh, various books that are written in English. And it's a, it's an ongoing learning experience. I would say at least my understanding just now is in its very basic infant uh, state. Uh, and when I look at the kind of knowledge that exists in our tradition, it is so vast and extensive um, that we start thinking in terms of its size, you'll get intimidated and probably go back, shrink back to how we exist. Uh, but it's just, it's so much more enjoyable just to sort of explore that whole journey is so enjoyable uh, at a very, very personal level. Uh, so in that context, I thought there were, there were some ideas that I sort of kept in my mind uh, debating over. Uh, in none of these, I have very strong views or I've got an inclination to go one way or the other. Uh, but I thought this conversation with you will both be educative for me and hopefully for those listening in. Um, Understanding emerges, so but the whole idea is to sort of understand and learn more and to test those those gray areas or at least in in lot of our heads in the public space what might be viewed as gray areas where i see a lot of the traditional indian right doesn't want to deal with the gray area we want to pretend that it does not exist my thought is that, that through these conversations that i might have with you is to sort of push those lines uh, to to pose them in the in the manner ask them in a very stark fashion uh, so that it is clear that there are answers to these questions of, I mean, we can start a discussion with what is Hinduism in, in a certain sense, because current narrative as we see today is that what we consider Hinduism today is actually very Bhakti tradition in its orientation. It's a, and it's a strange kind of Bhakti tradition. It is sort of it is based on faith and belief rather than an actual experience of a deity or of, of a devta or uh, of anything above that level. Um, so, so it's very, uh, in that sense, it, it's got a Semitic flavor to it, our, the way we look at our bhakti today. So I thought the first part of a discussion could actually address uh, this one element, is that we have got this Puranic bhakti kind of sense and in, in another context, we have some sense that uh, the Vedas, we are a Vedic tradition. So very often we say this is a Vedic tradition, but our practiced religion is more Puranic. And so it's, it's also to sort of, I thought maybe it is worthwhile to understand the different strands uh, that formed what we now consider a bit of a khichdi, which we might call Hinduism. But each one of those were very different from each other. Uh, and so when we talk in terms of any form of Hindu unity, it is not, it is not as a Christian unity, Islamic unity. We are actually very, very different. We enjoy the interface with each other. Uh, so it's more than just tolerance or acceptance of another viewpoint. Uh, it is how you enjoy that interaction because the rule interactions purpose is to raise the level of understanding. Uh, and so therefore what truly is 
what you might kind of what what has now come to be defined as Hinduism. The ancient uh, we we had something which was called the Astika and an Astika aspect of our tradition. Astika being rather than saying believers in God was more people who accepted the prevalence uh, or the predominance of the Vedas, and the Nastikas were the ones that rejected the Vedas. In the Astika traditions, there are probably five basic, five or six basic schools uh, of Astika tradition. So I wanted to sort of discuss that with you. And essentially, and different from Nastika, Nastika also has got different schools in it. But my sense from whatever I have read and learned and discussed is that each of these traditions are so different from each other that sometimes Judaism, Islam, and Christianity are closer uh, as theologies than each one of these schools. Vedic and Upanishadic, at least in my, from what I've understood, go hand in hand, are fairly close. Then they talk about a Puranic tradition as if it is so different and disconnected from the, from the Vedic, uh, that its underlying basis is very different. And then you have more in, I would say, in peninsular India or southern India, eastern India, is that they are the Agma and the Tantra traditions. Uh, so they tend to say that we are different from the Vedic. And you find a lot of that debate amongst Tamilians in particular, who say that Agma is different and the Vedics are trying to dominate over us. And, uh, but there is, it's not as if it is baseless completely. Uh, like some of our sort of commentators that are more Vedic in their orientation would like to say that that is completely baseless. It may not be as baseless. So they might be, it might, that sort of comment might be in a shade of grey. The third is very often when we talk about ancient India, a lot of our discourse and we put some historicity to it. A lot of our discourse is what happened in North India, what was the Harappan civilization about, what happened in the Gangetic Plain. And it seems as if uh, his authority goes to sort of maybe 3000 BC, 4000 BC, depending upon where you would like. But it is mostly concentrated on the north. A lot of the scriptures are northern in their orientation. And particularly when you look at books of history, they tend to suggest that maybe South India civilization started only in maybe uh, 500 BC or 1000 BC, though it is archaeological find to sort of challenge those notions. But there is also that. And my question is not historic in nature. My question is in terms of religious tradition, is that was there, was there a robust religious tradition which goes back as much uh, or even further as you would say the Vedic traditions in the north? And was it a slightly different tradition in the South, which therefore blended? The, the other thing is just the good guy and the bad guy. I mean, we tend to think of the terms of Rakshasas, Asuras. Uh, but when you use the term Hindu, the way we use it, actually all of them are also Hindus. They are not worshipping Allah. <laughs> but, but maybe the distinction between good guy and bad guy is not as stark as it is in the Semitic uh, theologies. Um, and, and we have... We have a more gray area where the good guys do a set of bad things and a bad guys do a set of good things in all of our tradition. But there also seems to be a bit of a north and south to it. But the first question, if we could sort of start with the Astika traditions, how different they might be, the Nastika, how different. And each one of these, as I understand, is very, very ancient. 
Anna, uh, as usual, very nice <laughs> getting together with you. Yes. Uh, Thank you. So, yeah, uh, I uh, largely agree. I think probably a little bit of uh, difference, but largely I agree with the perspective you have taken. Uh, Hinduism of late has become more faith centered, or the majority of its practice has become faith oriented. It's only a minority that are actually really into its seeking systems, synthesizing the knowledge, uh, and invested in the inner sheets of the tradition, if you want to call it that, where the real synthesis of knowledge, the orthopraxy, all these are there. Majority are largely detached. So if we see that in terms of koshas, you have that innermost sheet where the uh, rigorous knowledge tradition exists, then you have an outer sheet where it is less philosophic and more uh, practice-centric. And you have yet another outer sheet where even the practice is not rigorous, it is just a you know loose belief that binds you to the inner sheet. So there is that kind of concentric sheets where the uh, influence keeps exerting. That's one way to look at it. And that is how society also is in general. You have the uh, more formal structures of uh, social order, then you have more loose sheets, then you have the forest uh, kind of life where it is very loose. There is no tight you know, system of uh, governance or anything. Uh, then you have still uh, farther sheets, like let us say the sannyasis are there, those uh, where you don't even have uh, you know, a very rigorous life code for them. You can do... So in that sense, this koshas, the way an individual has the five, five koshas, probably also makes sense for us to see the uh, tradition and the society, traditional society in the form of koshas. Then we will probably also relate very easily what sheet is prone to the maximum change, where the synthesis happens, where the reform happens, where corrections happen, where Evolutionarily, if this organism is changing, how it is taking inputs and how it is evolving at what level. So in that sense, if we see, uh, and then this is one aspect. The other aspect is, it is an ecosystem of traditions. Right? Uh, if you contrast it with a religion, a religion has a fundamental hypothesis, which you accept or you reject. If you accept, you are an insider, you are a believer. If you don't, then you are an outsider. So basically, there is a vertical split in the world between the believers and the non-believers. But here, every tradition is an in-faced tradition. It is, all its content is meant only for the insiders. It doesn't have anything for the outsider in terms of what, how they should be dealt with or things like that. But all the traditions do have some common uh, understanding and common agreements. Let us say, they broadly three. One is the bodhana or the pedagogy, where the learning system happens. So each of these is a uh, teacher-disciple uh, lineage. So it has its own pedagogy. And then how you propound your theory. There is a vadana or the argumentation, nyaya or the system of argumentation is the second subject, where everybody has some common agreement. All the traditions have this... Uh, because that is how they engage and they harmonize and they enrich each other. Third is probably the epistemology. 
while each tradition may have its own accepted uh, pramanas and all that the fact that you have to have these pramanas you have to spell out what your epistemic basis are for your hypothesis so all these three are assumed to be uh, common or uh, are, are some things that every school contributes to the ecosystem and that is how all schools communicate with each other that way we have created an ecosystem where traditions can come they can propound their theories they can expand they can spread they can refute other theories and then they have their life cycle eventually they dissolve into the ecosystem without lot of uh, you know baggage left as a result of this what happens is whenever a school dissolves back into the mainstream you don't have the you know uh, social trauma dealt with the how a system collapses and all that the practitioners just pick up other practices other traditions and the knowledge that is contributed by this tradition remains forever any permanent contribution remains without that tradition actually becoming a baggage let us say today nobody knows there is no first hand practitioner of sankhya but whereas we know that the knowledge of sankhya the trigunas the 24 principles are all these are used across now vedantins the vaidikas the tantrikas agamikas everybody uses this knowledge and everybody understands that this is a sankhya contribution nobody denies it but at the same time it is so dissolved into the common ecosystem and that is how things uh, in general work in this ecosystem the contribution that is there and then there are so many other traditions which have probably not so much of knowledge contribution if you take for instance harihara advaita nobody hears that name anymore but it ha- it was very vital in certain regions in dissolving the shaiva vaishnava uh, bad blood and it that after that contribution it has dissolved there were uh, there was poetry at that time there were uh, treatises at that time but they were all temporal at that time they served their purpose now it, it had done its work it has now dissolved so similarly that, that's how this ecosystem works in general so uh, so just just pausing for a second it is just to sort of understand uh, and sort of focus a little more on sankhya itself uh, because one is i have always wondered whether there is something to the name when you say sankhya is it indicative of a mathematical philosophical underpinning to the or, or mathematical it, enumerating sankhya is number right so it is basically enumerating yes it is, yeah. it is enumerating the 24 principles right that are underlying the creation right so the and and where i come from is um is very often when I, when you when you in discourses with practitioners of different kinds they will say that uh, temple construction uh, which is the the agama shastra for uh, temple construction uh, they will talk about ayurveda they will talk about uh, astrology they will they will say or yoga they will they will talk about all of those are derived from sankhya and they will say that the underlying foundation the foundation for these practices are sankhya and i have always wondered particularly in the context of ayurveda uh, also when you talk in terms of uh, just the uh, just how how idols are created or how the murtis are created how temples are created the sort of the design that is there i'll first touch upon my understanding of uh, of ayurveda and then 
in the context of sankhya and then i'll talk about the temple sort of architecture the murti creation in the context of sankhya i have always wondered and this is this is something that people would sort of your regular history would teach you that mankind grew by trial and error and when i think in terms of ayurveda the question has always bothered me as to how i mean how old can trial and error be so for example let's say christ was born 2000 years back how much evolution have we seen in christianity in the last 2000 years and if you look at the level of intricacy and the detail that exists in say ayurveda you look at the combinations that they have come up with for various diseases for how they it has got to be many times older than just 2000 years uh, because given just its lifespan christianity has not been able to come up with those uh, levels of understanding whereas uh, ayurveda has now they would there there's also a common thought process of saying that everything is capable of everything has got a aushadi element to it so everything is capable of being medicine or medicinal for some of the traditional ayurvedic physicians they will say that every disease has a um, there is a solution there is a medicine for every disease you have to determine where the problem is and what the problem is once you are able to identify the problem treatment is just a matter of is very quick thing yeah. now it's at least my sense underlying sense is it would have had too much of trial and error and none of our scriptures talk about a trial and error method so there there has to be a slightly different method you can't just superimpose trial and error just because modern science in the last 200 years grew by trial and error so my sense and this is this is the question that i had is that does sankhya work on the basis that if you combine certain gunas etc that this will be so you can before you actually test it you can predict that this is the outcome and then you test the outcome on an animal or a human being and i am talking purely in the ayurvedic context is that you can at some level of meditative state you can figure out the gunas of certain material or certain plants and you can figure out the way it will interact with a certain human being uh, let's say human being for this particular case and you look at the guna of the human being you look at the characters of the human being and that is how they get a sense for this is where the treatment might lie but there is a clear methodology to how they do it i mean we may not fully appreciate it but methodology will mean that there is logic to it logic will mean that because again when you come to ayurveda they have clear proportions for how you will mix it or mix things so there seems to be some measurement as well uh, when they think in terms of uh, these and and ayurveda is not necessarily only administering something orally i mean it is also about touching points in your body uh, or getting you to sit in a certain posture or asana so there it it comes at multiple levels there has to be a method to a mat it can't just be trial and error so once you get to drug that is one aspect but as you said ayurveda philosophy goes deeper right so its basic principle is you have to improve the vitality of the body yes so that it can overcome the ailment yes so uh, the whole uh, medicinal philosophy is oriented towards how do you improve the vitality as True. part of that yes drugs are there but 
yeah and when you talk of drugs obviously the chemical compositions are there the experiments are there how do you record the experimental results all this is there you can't call experiment a trial and error because there is a, a basis on which you choose an experiment uh, it's a fairly logical basis it's not just random uh, absolutely and that applies to all forms of science uh, and it's equally valid in uh, physical chemistry pharmacology as well as the ayurveda true true but here slightly uh, there are more dimensions to it number one probably we don't work with the chemical we work with the uh, entire compound or more than compound we say it's substance itself let us say there is a plant it is the plant product we use rather than the chemical we don't prefer capsule made out of that plant rather than because we believe that the the magic formula lies in that organic substance rather than the extracted physical inorganic substance so that's part of reason why the herbs are used in a more direct form than the modern medicine so which is which is we have what what you are trying to say probably if i may paraphrase it it is rather than yes use the annamaya kosha of the plant is to use the other koshas in which the plant might exist you can explain it even at a purely chemical physical level because that magic combination is not just that one chemical what comes with that life form is a more complex formula yes yes and all of which you can't independently or individually manufacture and then achieve that magic uh, combination so let us say but this part can be explained even at the physical chemical level so i was asking my my question was slightly one level deeper which is when somebody adds two say two plants together just for a simple example two plants together there has got to be some information like in modern physics we you know that certain chemicals work in a certain manner with each other so you predict and therefore you do it lot of our ayurvedic development must have been somewhat similar where people have a hypothesis the hypothesis is based on something and then they Absolutely. predict and then they test it yes because when you say sankhya but yeah but sankhya's influence is there uh, in terms of gunas yeah the primal gunas it propounds the uh, tanmatras these affect every subject and ayurveda is similarly because it has to do with the prana so my my question was the essence of measurement for all these guna so is sankhya somewhat indicative of a science rather than a philosophy of a science uh, that, that is not sankhya because primarily the three gunas okay. the nine gunas the combination of elements this is not as much derived from sankhya itself probably but you have again it's not more than darshanas Yeah, right. you have the more logical uh, aspects of the vaisa uh, nyaya all these things right 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 and the ayurveda is uh, yeah so if i if i sort of move away from ayurveda um and if we talk in terms of temple because uh, temples are clearly by measurement uh murtis are by the, 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 i mean whether you use a dhyana shloka for a murti etc is how do you, how do you do it and and one of the objections that i have always had to how we approach uh i mean we look at the visual beauty 
and he's also beautiful and lot of indians think of uh, indian tradition as part of our culture yes it is part of our culture but it is reflective of so much more than just culture uh, um, so there is an underlying science that is missed and the science talks to at least in the indian system art is not just art in a visual sense you can before you make the thing you know that it will appeal to a lot of people so there is a underlying science to creation of what is now viewed as art so whether a murti looks one way or looks another way the kind of garments or the kind of jewelry that a murti might have or if you look at a temple how the temple is constructed the kind of sculpture that you might sort of have in and around it the the various idols the demigods etc there there is uh, there, there is a clear logical reason why it exists as against uh, um, michelangelo just makes uh, sculpture for sure. beauty, yes. physical beauty here there is an underlying logic to why it is being made in that particular fashion and again there is a lot of measurement that is involved with it so yeah that is there and okay if you go back to the veda itself there is a very elaborate kalpa which is a vedanta where you see the proportions the measurement how you combine things uh, so in the context of astronomy in the context of mathematics in the context of how you design the uh, vedi at the vedashala uh, that and so it is there all over and obviously that yagnas uh, yagnashala uh, that is the base from which your temple has later evolved so architecturally there is a continuation between these things and uh, okay ayurveda is there then your uh, alchemy is there where the yes. rasa is yes. what they call it where the chemical compositions are created uh, partly for medicinal use partly for uh, other purposes also these things have existed and they have seen a parallel stream of development so partly as part of this vedanga then in the agama you see the development in tantra you see development there, there has been a parallel development all these things and all these subjects have been useful in uh, let us say ayurveda or uh, jyotisha or uh, no the other example you took is the temple so uh there are these separate subjects right I and mean, we can't call them really uh, subjects they are interdisciplinary in their nature what i'm trying to get at is uh, you have these darshanas the sankhya all these things they are giving you a philosophy of how to approach things and uh, and more so how to understand the world each uh, darshana is a window to the world one says understand world one says understand uh, you know qualities of the being so that, that way right this is yeah. one stream but, but orthogonally you have a lot of uh, exact uh, sciences or the subjects that deal with your day to day matters measurements the chemical compositions and things like that so all this put together is uh, becoming your uh, knowledge body the the so if we move away from sankhya so there is sankhya at least uh, it has got a certain approach to it and lots of people think of it 
uh, very differently. I think uh, some history, if you, if you just sort of search around for it, some will some will say that it accepts the idea of a god. Some will say that it does not accept the idea of a god. Maybe that's the question of how it is grown. In over fact, it. there are both. There is a Seshwara Sankhya, there is a Nirishwara Sankhya also. Yeah, yeah. Nirishwara yeah. is remaining now, but yeah. earlier versions both were there. Yeah, yeah. And then I can't claim to know the next two schools, either Nyaya or Vaisheshika so much. What I do know is a perceptor, so to say, of Sankhya might be Kapila Muni, uh, of uh, Nyaya might be Gautama, uh, of Vaisheshika, yeah. I'm not exactly sure. Uh, Another, I think. Yeah. Uh, so I'm not sure of these two, but if we if we move further, so you, if you if we say there is uh, yoga and if there is Vedanta and Vedanta then has three separate sects as well but yoga is also seen as a separate school or a separate darshana uh, in itself and as I understand it all these darshanas are 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 mentioned in in one way or the other in the Vedas themselves so it's not as if these darshanas, uh, as I understand it, come out outside of the Vedas, but they are actually embedded in the Vedas. So when if we, if we look at yoga, yoga seems to, I mean, yoga seems to talk in terms of um, a merger of different things. Yoga is just a combination as a, uh, I mean, just loose English language, uh, sort of things coming together, uh, a blending of something. Uh, we tend to think of yoga as Hatha Yoga, but it's probably so much more than just Hatha yeah. Yoga. Um, but then there is the school of yoga, which is, uh, which is a little more tilted uh, in the direction of Bhakti. Uh, so there is Bhakti Yoga, but there are other elements to yoga. So as well. If we take a step back, we'll be able to wire it better. Yeah. Continuity we can establish better. Probably, yeah, yeah. let us say when we say that this is an ecosystem of traditions. Now the uh, darshanas have a wide uh, contribution. Each of them, while each of them is an approach to life and how to realize oneself and all that, each of these has one fundamental contribution to the common corpus of knowledge. So Nyaya has contributed uh, logic. Mimamsa has contributed analysis. Vaisheshika has contributed again how to understand the tattva, how to break down into basic principles and things like that. Sankhya is enumerated. And Sankhya is the primal jnana marga, in fact. How you understand the essence of the world so that you can achieve right. uh, the greater happiness. Right. Okay. Similarly, the Mimamsa, along with the analysis it has also contributed uh, the philosophy of uh, action the karma yoga all these things then you have the vedanta which is uh, it says all the that you have so far talked of is the world is vishwamimamsa but leaving all this is what you get what you should ultimately get so let's focus on that that is what the vedanta is saying so it has basically created another frame of reality altogether so that is what vedanta has contributed so as as I was understanding it, so yoga is I'm not I, I, I practice hatha yoga in the past, so I have a bit of a sense for yoga beyond uh, just what it is. But so yoga <laughs> has several aspects. One is as a darshana, what Patanjali propounds and says: this is how you realize 
these are the methods to achieve what sankhya is setting as a goal so that is why yoga is almost always associated with sankhya as a yes. philosophy so, so once you have refuted sankhya you have refuted yoga also right so more like a practiced part of the of sankhya it's like it's like having a recipe and then going into the kitchen and cooking the meal exactly that uh, is the yoga and which is why yoga has such a pervasive presence across schools so now today the most famous practice uh, in the practicing aspect of the philosophy that you have today is archa marga right people do that puja in their house you do it in temple you do it as an individual in groups it's the most pervasive single form of practicing hinduism today is the archa marga and that itself has internally adopted so many yogic uh, elements your mantra marga has yoga in it nada yoga has yoga in it then you have hatha yoga is there uh, nada anyways that uh, apart from that there is a laya yoga where your raja yoga all these things come then you have a kundalini yoga so there are so many flavors of it and a lot of these uh, smarta as well as agama tantra schools you adopt a lot of uh, yogic elements there is probably today no single school that does not have any yoga element every single school has some or the other uh, part of uh, yoga in it right 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 so in that sense it is giving you methods for practice that everybody understands just like sankhya has given you three gunas and the 24 principles all these things yoga has given this and this again is used in every school it's not as if there is one yoga school which is going to rival with one vedanta school right right vedanta doesn't mind using any yoga practices shankar also has written a yoga dharavali itself combining yes. yoga paths so that's how our ecosystem is it is very harmonious and mutually enriching so if we look at the next one is mimamsa um and mimamsa is this sort of the the from at least my understanding please correct me if i am wrong it's more ritualistic in its approach um so it's probably of the various darshana the highest in terms of ritualism uh, and that is the school where madana mishra was vidum adi shankara had the debate um and as they debating you as you read their debates you also see that there are some underlying features but there is also that stark difference between just the approach that the two are coming from uh, adi shankara from one side and madana mishra from the other side and his wife uh, yeah to another level bharati uh, but 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 it is it is just how the schools while their similarities are so different as well from each other uh is that there is a fairly heated debate in terms of this how and as the debate is described historically we we keep mentioning that we were a debating society scholars would debate with each other whether there were similar debates between scholars of and i don't know the answer to this scholars of sankhya and nyaya between nyaya and vaisheshika between vaisheshika and yoga that uh, after nyaya was refuted it was reinstated as a navya nyaya they came up with new hypothesis right. they didn't want the school to die because it has so much of contribution to me yeah yeah whereas sankhya they have just sucked it out and left the skeleton out 
ಕುಮಾರಿಲ್ಲಾಂತ right right basically right. the veda vedanta is what they saw as the sustaining principles for the traditions and then the last one that i would say which is vedanta uh and very often and which is also where you see the harmony while there was so much of uh, you know the argument and then shankara won over and converted sureshwara in fact but uh in one stroke he says for everything that belongs to vyavahara you have to take kumaralavatta's word as the final authority so everything that you if you need to understand the word you have to go by vatta right. only when it comes to brahman you need to go to vedanta right right so basically the uh, ritual is there but see ritual ultimately is uh, i mean probably a very literal way of looking at mimamsa mimamsa its essence is it is propounding the karma yoga right which is looking at the whole world as uh, a, a yajna in itself so if you perfect action you have perfected yourself because all that you are doing is action in the world that is where the karma yoga and right. so you, you break it down into its basic ingredients the inspiration for action the subsidiary rights are there then you have the other ingredients that are involved the results that you are getting how much you are focused on the result versus the procedure versus the ingredients so this is how understanding all this is how you perfect action right and perfection of action along with the inspiration and that is how one is evolving from within right 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 in the in this context and specifically just a side question and maybe it's useful to sort of pose that as well is that the indian tradition of debate is not necessarily the way it is projected today by the peace loving guys okay so so what so it is not a tradition of peace in that sense uh, as peace understood today so the way these debates would happen is one side would win the other had the option of either accepting the winners underlying basis or drowning them themselves in a river or in a well uh, so as and i don't know to what extent it is true uh, i mean but this has been i've been told this by many um, so to there but cases, in fact, uh, if you see ashtavakra's case there was such thing yeah yeah the, that was a condition of debate but these conditions are decided earlier itself and true true it's not that majority went like that uh, there were all kinds true true but uh, more than the i agree with you in that the peace aspect it's not basically peace or anything but integrity was there one correct, who loses correct. really loses it's not as correct. if you lose an argument here start propagating somewhere else correct correct absolutely so, integrity was given utmost importance Uh, absolutely absolutely and so at one somebody once described it and said in the sadhu tradition it is also seen that shankara is one of adi shankara is has caused the deaths of so many people because many people ended up drowning themselves rather than converting uh, uh, that's not what we gather from the shankara vijaya in fact we don't see too many deaths 
in because he argued with almost every kind of tradition and so most converted to what he uh, convert yeah but even if you lose accepted his logic so they, it's like this you lose you lose fine but it does not mean that you have to leave your uh, faith convert or anything but you just oh, lose yes. the credibility to propagate this view anymore okay okay that is the fundamental thing right i mean once your hypothesis is lost you can't keep propagating right, right. so that, that is how the debate curtails propagation of fraudulent uh, hypothesis right, right right within the ecosystem if you see right right now each person based on his own ego levels and all that can go put any bet on it right i will right. die if i am i lose and all that that is based right. on individual uh, character right right right, right. So it's primarily about you are uh, now you lose it let us say you know that this is a weak hypothesis you will work on it to improve the hypothesis hypothesis you so over centuries people refined their argument so much you see vedanta 3000 years ago and uh, vedanta today the arguments have refined so much over several generations so uh, several uh, re hypothesis keeps happening right right right, right. that is how knowledge enriches right there is that organic evolution that happens then the other question is that then we come to the last which is the vedanta and very often in modern india we most people talk of vedanta as if it is advaita and most people describe hinduism as advaita i mean i used to do it myself when i used to be asked oh, that, <laughs> i used to describe it in advaitin terms until i realized that actually that is not true there is a clear advaita uh, element then there is the vishishta advaita which i don't understand so much but i understand is a mix of these two uh, i don't understand the philosophy so much but between advaita as i see it it is the whole idea of brahman that brahman is omnipresent and we are we are all part of which is where the maya concept is that actually we are brahman but we think that we are different which is the part of maya which plays so dvaita on the other hand does not think like that it says that there is a creator there is god and there is you and the best that you can be is a great devotee of ishwara or a uh, 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 madhava uh, but oh, i mean you are even if you are realized you are just realized as your jiva it's not as if you are going to become the para that's absolutely absolutely and in popular discourse it seems that so many of us have completely put that aside Two and the reason is the non-advaita is a very small minority, yeah. as a matter of fact. Right. That too in the Vedantic uh, sphere. Right. Right. I mean, they call it Vedantic. I mean, however you phrase it. Right. right. So any technically speaking, any uh, school that uh, gives a commentary to Gita, Brahma Sutras, and Upanishads is a Vedantic tradition. Right. Right. But Advaita. Uh, just one point because the there is a reason why people default advaita as the understanding is advaita is extremely pervasive yes shankara's advaita is just one of it then you have uh, the shaiva shakta version so there is also a vaishnava version so in each of these uh, there might be differences let us say shankara's is vivartavada the uh, shakta uses parinamavada but still these are all advaitas and if you look at the school of uh, the overall ecosystem advaita is still very dominant so most people make it an approximate equivalent of vedanta 
Hinduism as uh, Advaita. True. And and so so here is the limited point that I wanted to make is that Advaita says that everything is Brahman. And the Dvaita element, which at one time, as I understand, was really predominant uh, as a viewpoint, was that there is a Jiva and there is uh, yeah. whichever creator God there might be. Now, if you look at it, these are so vastly different as just basic concepts. No, but see, logically, if you derive it, logically, if you derive it, Dvaita in a way derives from Sankhya directly. Yes, yes. It's just that the, you are propounding a Ishvara there. Yes. But it's basically the multiplicity of Purusha. Yes. It is a Sankhya concept that Dvaita directly adopts. Yes. Which yes. is where the Vedanta differs from it. But there is there are these stark differences, as I said, I from what I understand, Visheshadvaita is a combination of these, uh, of the Dvaita and the uh, Advaitin uh, idea. Moving slightly away from this, and I'll sort of circle back, um, is that in particular in Tamil Nadu, um, there is this stark difference between the Shaivite and the Vaishnavite, uh, where they will not even enter each other's temples, they oh, will yeah. eat food, they will not marry. There is that stark a difference. I mean, it is, uh, they would, when they were kings, they would battle with each other even. Uh, so it's not as if we are all, all these ideas are homogeneous and we are all brotherly and friendly. They were actually extremely opposite poles. Um, and, and to the extent that if you were a Vaishnavite, you would sort of cast it, you talk about the Shaivites poorly. If you're a Shaivite, maybe you don't talk about the Vaishnavite so poorly, but the Vaishnavites is slightly harder core. Um, in, in, in terms of looking at the Shaivite or any of the other philosophies, the Shakta, the Devi and the Shaivite would be closer together. Uh, they would not be at battle with each other in terms of theology, but these other two, Vaishnava and Shaivite would, would be at battle, which is where the Harihara tradition, as you said, it's sort of, all yeah. right, calm down guys kind of thing, it sort of blends the two ideas. The, the point that I'm trying to make is out of, out of all this is that the kind of differences that exist between the Shaivite and the Vaishnava or between the Advaita and the Dvaita. And I'm assuming that Advaita and Dvaita is part of the Vedanta and it is subsects in Vedanta. Speaking for myself, I don't understand the other major schools that well or major darshanas that well. I'm assuming if sub darshanas can have that much divergence, then the other underlying darshanas, yes, there is some commonality, but they will be stark divergence. That is why you recognize them as different darshanas and not as sub-darshanas. What, what we do know is amongst the sub-darshanas, there is that divergence. Amongst the Vaishnava and the Shaiva, there is that divergence. It is over a period and in the context of the onslaught that we incurred uh, in, in terms of invasions or conquerors, um, that we sort of started becoming more blended. But in our essence, when what we describe as Hinduism is, is probably more an, uh, an agglomeration of different... Uh, yeah, which is where we'll need to understand that original ecosystem. Yeah, yeah. Again, going back, you have that... Um, people say there is a Vedic, there is Tantric, there is Nambhauta, yeah. all these things, but... 
the nigamagama traditions if you see that is a very harmonious ecosystem from which you had the uh, kapalikas the you know uh, lot of people came the bhairavas are there then your shaktas are there shaktas also so, so many variants were there and the vaishnavas were many variants you had the shrautas you had the smartas so a lot of traditions each of them had certain overlaps at the practice level at the philosophy level they used to have their overlaps there this disagreements on these things but this ecosystem continued it was never having the kind of major denominations that we tend to see hinduism as the sense of this denominations and canonizing of things is predominantly a modern understanding of hinduism yeah yeah so whatever let us say shankara had seen 72 traditions and he harmonized into six traditions but it was never limited to six even after shankara yeah. it remained countless yeah yeah but yeah there, there was some semblance of semblance of a superstructure that came and then uh, it enabled uh, more harmonious interaction between those uh, traditions that is the best that can be said so there is one one comment that i would make and i would seek your reaction to that comment as well is that um, whenever you ask a brahmin of these differences you will find some version of what you just described right in terms of commonality because he sees the big picture correct when you talk to a non brahmin who is a practitioner the non brahmin is very clear of the difference that exists i mean they will they will say that yes the vedas are true etc etc but they have this completely different sense of uh, this is tantra this is different from uh, vedha this is oh, i have this i have one counter question yes yes is arjuna i mean uh, arjuna of the mahabharata is that guy a vedic or a tantric guy so i would my answer would be arjuna is a vedic who also assimilates tantra but he didn't describe himself that way he did not put any labels for himself correct correct so what i am saying is this whole labeling business is a very recent business for one person to it is a tradition is in paste in the sense that you look inwards you try to learn that knowledge you try to enrich yourself and try to liberate yourself uh, uh, this whole outward looking and then engaging with the other in a conflicting way is not the essentially uh, in the way of doing things that that is that is excellent so so i there could be conflict there were yeah. conflicts also at times and these conflicts in fact if you see uh, you will see the bitter uh, and bloody shiva vaishnava conflict which was brief in fact it was not a very long battle yeah, yeah. but at the same time you have also seen that there was no external entity like a king who has harmonized these things these people have solved their problems themselves so today if you see in the dharmasthala you have a jaina maintained shiva temple where the worship is done by the vaishnavas correct correct don't get a more harmonious example than that there is no it's not just one exception correct people have solved their problems in their own way because their ecosystem was harmonious And, and, exactly, yeah, and, and that's exactly one of my points that I had in my head. Is that this whole need to label ourselves one way or the other is not essentially a tradition true to Bharata. 
100% and i was i'll give you some three four uh, dimensions to it one is this whole canonizing of six darshanas we never had it yeah shat darshanas is just a technical term but vidyaranya himself lists 16 darshanas and that, that just shows that it's not as if you have to fit into one of those six just yeah. because you are an astika similarly yeah. nastikas also had their darshanas this is this is one example now you had that again shaivism vaishnavism sikhism this whole ism business is a very recent very very recent understanding yes 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 somebody can say yeah i am a shaiva i am not a vaidika which is fine nobody cares you, you can be anything you want but you can't at the same time deny that your shaiva tradition has some very deep overlap with other traditions and that will be known to people who have invested in that knowledge if you understand the agamas and their uh, let us just take those 36 principles of shaiva where did they come from without 24 principles of sankhya so are you related to veda or not you can say no but or if i were to think sometimes i think of it like this is that all these are seeking the truth of, of the universe of existence absolutely and it is fairly possible that not one comes from the other but amongst the agama shastras they had their version of the truth which was so truth is the same people view it differently but truth is the same ved the vedics looked at the truth and they also had a truth but since truth is underlying is the same there is a commonality even if its origins might be different and partly, i don't think that makes sense partly but partly it's basically the tantra does allude to veda it's not as if it says veda is false knowledge especially right. so, so, so so none of these people claim that veda is false knowledge so there are people particularly in south india that assert that tantra and agama is older than the vedas now obviously the, yeah. when, when we say older uh, i mean the vedas have always existed so veda is the underlying truth of the universe so but i think what they mean is in terms of uh, how the how the sort of the the classification maybe so i'm not sure that they're exactly correct it's probably more political in that sense it is and it is more identity obsessed yes yes you don't need to and probably a pushback against what people might see is brahmanism so pushback yeah, so, why are you brahmin 